Welcome to the Outside Right podcast. Welcome to the Football Travel Podcast from Outside Right, coming up in this episode. Uh, and, and shows that there was a, f- a football culture in Scotland long before Sheffield or London or, or, or anywhere else. We speak to sports historian Andy Mitchell about how the game got started in Scotland. Um, and then there was a, a bit of a, a period of, of readjustment where you had four different champions in, in four different seasons. And that's Tom Williams from Agence France Presse who introduces us to the domestic game in France. Enjoy. The Outside Right podcast. I'm joined by Scottish sports historian Andy Mitchell. Welcome, Andy. Good morning. How are you? Uh, good, thank you. Um, so, tell us a, a little bit about yourself and how you've been following the history of Scottish sport. Well, I, I've been as a fairly passionate uh, sports historian all my life, and uh, I've now written several books, published numerous articles, and, and run a sports history website. Uh, and on top of that, I'm fortunate enough to have been paid to work in football for the last 20 years. I was press officer at the Scottish FA for 10 years, and now I work as a freelance for UEFA and for the FIFA World Football Museum. So I've sort of joined up my personal interests with my professional interests and uh, keep uh, having a lot of time to do lots of research. Okay, that's brilliant. Um, sounds very interesting. So what's the start of what we now know as association football? It's rather murky. I interviewed Sheffield FC recently, which is kind of recognised as the world's first football club. But in Edinburgh, there was a team some 33 years before called the Football Club of Edinburgh. And I know that the game may have developed slightly differently in Scotland. Do you want to sort of give us a background of how it started? Yeah, well, f- football's been played since medieval times in Scotland and England, uh, and that's pretty well documented. There are there are folk football uh, events all around the country, from uh, Orkney and Shetland down to the south of England. But it was also played uh, in the schools. And uh, whilst we tend to focus on, on the development of football on, on the events in Eton and Harrow, Charterhouse, Westminster, and rugby, uh, what's not so well known is that a lot of other schools also had their own football games. And my particular focus is on Edinburgh, where uh, a kicking game of football was played at the high school of Edinburgh from the late 18th century. And it was a very popular game. It was in an enclosed space, so they didn't run and carry with the, the ball. They, they, they kicked it around. Now, in 1824, one of the former pupils of the high school of Edinburgh uh, called John Hope went up to Edinburgh University where he was training to be a lawyer and he wanted to carry on playing the game so he set up the football club and very much in the way of the FA later on there was no prefix it wasn't the Edinburgh football club it was just the football club because it was the very first one of its kind it was an open club it wasn't exclusive to students it wasn't exclusive to former pupils of the Edinburgh high school and it was a great success. Uh, it attracted 70 or 80 members per year for the first 10 years of its life and had a very vibrant football culture. And the reason we know all this is that John Hope, the founder, kept incredibly detailed records. He had membership lists, he had accounts, he had descriptions of, of the uh, the events that they played, he even kept the letters from his his club members uh, and, and a description of how to make a football. So here we have a 
quite a long-lived football club which kept on going till about 1841, so that's 17 years of, of activity in Edinburgh. And uh, very clearly, this was the first football club mm. of any kind in the world, uh, which predates Sheffield by quite a considerable time uh, and, and shows that there was a, f a football culture in Scotland long before Sheffield or London or, or, or anywhere else. Right. And how did it evolve from there then? I mean, what kind of football were they playing? Was it more akin to sort of rugby without without the hand you were saying and that bit of rough and tumble? Uh, and how did it then become, you know, have people like Queen's Park, which is kind of recognisable, probably the first team that we'd know of association football in Scotland? Well, the, the, there's a bit of a jump between the, the Football Club of Edinburgh and Queen's Park. The, the type of play in, in Edinburgh was certainly a, a rough and tumble, as most games were then. And interesting that there it was well defined there's a sort of a very basic set of rules which have survived from the archive mm. uh, and all the john hope papers are kept in the scottish national archives now so they're easily accessible and the the, the rules quite clearly specify uh, a code of behavior there should be no tripping for example that um, they specified that there should be uh, goalposts that there were free kicks, that, uh, that there was a, uh, a sort of delineation of the, of the field of play because there was a, an imaginary line at the edge of play. So quite a few of the constituent parts of, of modern association football. But of course, football was, in those days, was what you wanted to make of it. There was no codification, no regulation. And um, even when you moved on to the 1850s and, and, and 1860s, uh, the early 1860s, there were no, no rules. Football could be whatever you wanted it to be. Mm. And it was just basically the fact that you had people, uh, almost exclusively men, kicking a ball about, sometimes carrying it with different codes of how to score a goal. So uh, all these different games came together and you, you ended up with the codification of the uh, of the game in 1863 to create association football, which was, a, a, as, as most people will know, it was a way of combining all the different uh, rules to have one common match that everybody could play and understand. Okay. And, of course, um, Scots are famous for taking the game around the world as well, um, beyond... Yes, and, and that, that really goes to the foundation of, of, of Queen's Park Football Club in 1867. Um, at that time, rugby football had been played in, in Scotland quite widely in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow. But Queen's Park was founded by a bunch of guys from the north of Scotland who had come down to Glasgow for work. So they had no background in that. And when they decided to kick, kick a ball about, they wrote to Charles Alcock at the FA, asked for a set of their rules and decided to adopt association rules. The biggest problem at that time was that they had no other forms of reference they had no very few opponents but they developed differently from the game in England uh, in England there was a, a, a culture of dribbling with the ball until you were tackled Queen's Park hadn't had that experience so they realized that passing the ball was more efficient so when you come to the 1870s and the, the, the in a way the, the 1872 the first international between Scotland and England was a catalyst for football taking off in Scotland and, and it took off very rapidly after that, when people realised it was a good, simple game to play. The, the footballers in Scotland had a passing game as against the English dribbling game. And that made the Scots uh, 
quite a desirable commodity, not uh, just in their own country, but then the English clubs realized that Scots could add an extra dimension. And by the same token, as Scots traveled abroad, uh, because we've always had a good ethos of, of seeing the world, making our fortune, uh, a good engineering background. A lot of engineers travelled the world and took this game with them. So that's why you ended up with Scots forming football clubs in places as diverse as um, Toronto, Shanghai, uh, in, in, in the former colonies, and, for, and closer to home in places like uh, Denmark, Sweden, Czech, Czechoslovakia. And uh, Scots are very often seen as founders of the game in, in, in these countries because they were the first ones to introduce an attractive new sport to that country. Well, that's brilliant. So it's great background in, in how um, the game got started in Scotland and how they managed to export it. Finally, just where can people find you online with your website and how can they find you on Twitter? Well, I've got a, a website called scottishsporthistory.com on which I have regular blog posts, but also a lot of background material. I've digitized quite a few books. Uh, there's a bibliography of Scottish sport in general there. Uh, so lots of information there. And I've got a, a Twitter handle, Andy Mitch Media, which uh, anyone is welcome to follow me. And whenever I do a new post, I'll, of course, I'll tweet it out and let people know that there's something new on the website. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Andy. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Outside Right Podcast. My guest is Tom Williams from Agence France Press. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, do you want to briefly introduce our listeners to, to what you do? Uh, yes. So, as you said, I work for the Agence France Press news agency, which is one of the world's three global news agencies, along with Reuters and the Associated Press. And I uh, used to work in France, uh, went over to Paris on a bit of a whim in 2008 uh, and spent four years there, primarily reporting on French football um, at a really interesting time for French football as well. Um, on the club front, I arrived just as that extraordinary period of dominance that Lyon had um, was coming to an end. Um, and then there was a, a bit of a, a period of, of readjustment where you had four different champions in, in four different seasons uh, Bordeaux, uh, followed by Marseille, and then Lille, who won the double under Rudy Garcia, and then uh, Montpellier uh, with that extraordinary title win in, in 2012. And then just prior to, to leaving Paris, the Qataris arrived at PSG and then started to sweep all before them. Um, and then also um, on, on the international front, uh, a very interesting time for the France national team with the, uh, uh, again, the, the pretty extraordinary scenes at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, the training ground strike, etc. And then Laurent Blanc coming in as, as, as manager after that and, and leading them to Euro 2012. Um, and then I, I moved back to London from Paris uh, at the end of 2012 and have been there ever since, reporting on the Premier League uh, generally um, and also keeping an eye on, on what's happening in France as well. And uh, to the uninitiated, what do they need to know about the French League? Who are the major players? Well, I mean, the first the first great French team, certainly post-war, was Stade Reims, uh, who reached the first European Cup final, lost to Real Madrid, uh, led by their, their great star Raymond Coppa, who subsequently joined uh, Real Madrid. Mm. Um, the great French team of the 60s and 70s was Saint-Étienne, who, who really flew the flag 
for for French football in Europe. Um, they reached one European Cup final. Uh, it's quite nice actually seeing them back on the, the continental scene and with, with that big Europa League tie coming up against Manchester United. In the 1980s, uh, there was a great rivalry, rivalry between Bordeaux and, and Marseille. And Marseille got the upper hand in that, had a great run at the start of the 1990s and were then brought low by the, the Bernat Tapie uh, corruption scandal. And then come the, the, the present century, uh, Lyon, uh, with that amazing uh, run of seven successive titles. And now PSG, um, who have swept all before them uh, following the arrival of, of the Qataris, who took over the club in, in 2011. Um, but then this season, a bit more interesting than the last four in the sense, you know, the fact that you've got Monaco and, and Nice unexpectedly, who are, who are both up there and, and giving PSG a really good run for their money. So just on OGC Nice, that's really interesting how they've um, suddenly come from almost nowhere in the last few years. I remember seeing them at the Stade I think about 2011 or 12, um, and it was very English-style, compact ground. I think there was about 12,000 people there. It was a horrible night. And then I've seen them again in their new ground, the Alliance Riviera, which is, um, I think they're getting them up in the 20,000s of fans, and, and it's a, there's a lot of empty seats even then. So Obviously, they, there's something has changed there, and they're attracting great players like Mario Balotelli, Hatim Ben Arfa, and um, and seem to be doing really well. What, what's behind that? Um, well, I think you can you can you can trace it all back to 2011 when uh, Jean Pierre Riviere, a local businessman, took over the club um, and immediately started sorting them out. Um, they'd been perennial relegation battlers um, prior to that Nice for several seasons and mm-hmm. um, he made some very clear-sighted appointments uh, one of which was, was bringing in Claude Puel as head coach in, in 2012 and, and Puel's uh, task was was to uh, devise a, a playing system um, that, that everyone could really buy into. Um, Rivier completely remodelled the club's recruitment process, invested very heavily in their youth academy uh, and they made some very shrewd signings over the last few years. They bought a lot of players from uh, Ligue 2, from the French second tier, uh, from places like Portugal as well. And, and so the club's been sort of steadily growing on the pitch. Uh, they moved into the new stadium, which is very impressive uh, in, in 2013. And, and, and with these small sort of incremental gains year on year, it, it's enabled them to bring in more high profile players such as the ones you mentioned, Hatem Benafa, who had the season of his life last season, uh, and then Mario Balotelli, who, who came in this season. They've also signed Yunus Belonda, who won the league with Montpellier. Uh, Dante, the Brazilian centre-back, who's done very well. Uh, they're due to move into a new training facility later this year. Uh, and then last year, um, uh, Chinese and American investors bought a, an 80% stake in the club. So on and off the pitch, um, you, you've got a sense of the club really moving in the right direction and uh, unexpectedly inserting themselves into the title race. And, and it's very interesting that the, the French domestic scene um, isn't quite as strong as the French international scene. Uh, I think it's because of France's international team in the 80s, having grown up with the, the Platini, uh, Fernandez, Tigana, all those sort of players. And then obviously in the, uh, in the early 90s, had the great Marseille team with Chris Waddle and Eric Cantona, uh, Basil Bolli, Jean-Pierre Papin, all that lot. Um, I always thought that France was the centre of the footballing world, but it's actually not really the case. As, as, uh, um, domestically, it's quite weak. They've only got that one European Cup win for Marseille in 1993. And yet at an international level, they have, what, two European Championships um, and, a, and a World Cup. They've been a runner-up in a few more finals, including their own Euros last year. What's the reason for that? Why hasn't Ligue 1 uh, managed to 
be as strong as as Serie A, as the Premier League, as La Liga, as the Bundesliga, etc. Um, I, I think there's a few factors. I think one of them is is the fact that when their their top teams have been uh, at the peak of their powers, they haven't always managed to exploit the possibilities they've had. You think about Saint Etienne losing that European Cup final in '76, I think it was. Um, Marseille obviously won, won the Champions League um, but then were brought down by a corruption scandal PSG were very strong in, in the middle part of the 1990s uh, but never got further than the European Cup semi-finals Lyon despite having that, that seven year period of dominance never got further than the semi-finals either um, and then PSG at the moment despite lording it over France have, have not gone beyond the quarter-finals um, I think a major issue is, is the difficulty that, that French teams have the increasing difficulty holding on to their best players I mean, it used to be the case that, that players would establish themselves in France earn a, a big money move to, to a big foreign club and then become a star you think about Michel Platini the most obvious example started off at Nancy went on to Saint-Étienne and then uh, eventually Juventus uh, more recently Zinedine Zidane he started out at Cannes, went on to Bordeaux, and then also Juventus, and then finished his career at Real Madrid. But these days, French players are coming through and, and leaving France, often before they've even played a, a Ligue 1 match. I mean, Paul Pogba is the most obvious example, left Lave for, for Man United before he'd set foot uh, on the pitch uh, in, in France's top level. Um, there's been plenty of other examples. Uh, Raphael Varane is another one. Came through at Lens. He'd been in the Lens first team for about half a season when he went to Real Madrid, and uh, and I think that's another factor uh, in that you know France has this extraordinary uh, reputation for for developing players. Uh, almost every elite European club has got at least one French player in their ranks, um, but you know none of them are playing in France. And I think the hope is with 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 the rise of PSG and with new investors at Marseille and uh, you know money at Monaco as well, is that more French players will be tempted to stay. Um, and that will get strong French teams built around a strong French core, like like you saw in previous decades. Where can people find you online, Tom? Uh, so my uh, social media handle uh, is at uh, Tom W Football, uh, and you'll find me on Twitter and Facebook. Although I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing with myself on Facebook yet. Uh, and yes, I mean as a warning, I, I do mainly tweet uh, about English football, uh, but but I, I still follow Liga pretty closely. So there's the odd there's the odd observation about uh, about French football in there as well. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Football Travel Podcast from Outside Right. You can find out more at outsideright.co.uk. That's W R I T E. Only follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, goodbye.